From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll speak with the creator of the Woke Wednesdays 414 Instagram account, which highlights Milwaukee issues and history. Then we'll learn about the first black woman, Cantor, who was born here in Milwaukee. Milwaukee at this time was a time of a lot of exciting black thought and modern African-American advancements. Plus, we'll learn about the life and death of Milwaukee and Mildred Fish Harnack. I think it's a fair statement that she's the only American who played a significant role or was executed for being part of the German resistance, male or female or anything else. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here's today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. To start, we'll tell you about a Milwaukee woman using social media to teach people about the city's history. Some of us turn to social media to decompress, often just mindlessly scrolling along. But social media has increasingly become a platform for discussion on social justice and a space where we can learn from others' experiences. Milwaukee and Christina Boyd is using Instagram to educate her followers about Wisconsin history, social justice, and current events. Her account, called Woke Wednesdays 414, was created in June of 2020 and covers everything like local food insecurity, an explanation on defunding police, to unpacking black femininity. She breaks it all down using colorful, easily digestible graphics. To share more about the account, we spoke back in 2021. So your first post for Woke Wednesdays 414 was in June of 2020. Can you share what prompted you to start this account? Yeah, so it was the same summer where a lot of the protesting was happening in Milwaukee, and we've seen a lot of people near the police stations and near stores and everything. And it was just really frustrating for me because there were a lot of people who just didn't get it and didn't understand what really was going on. And then it was also frustrating on another hand because I saw a lot of, um, of my friends and stuff protesting and it was like, wow, I can't believe like that this is happening, that things like this happen. And it's like, where have you been? So I feel like that's what really prompted me. It was like seeing both sides of people who didn't understand and then seeing both sides of people who were just now starting to see what's been happening in our city for the past, like how many ever years. So it was definitely a reaction to that summer and then just like tensions just boiling over. You post bi-weekly and your topics range from social justice issues, Wisconsin history, current events, other national or international topics as well. So how do you prioritize the subjects you want to dive into? Um, when I first started, I kind of wanted to take the approach of doing like what was like trending and like um, what was like the big thing people were talking about in the news. But I felt like over time, I kind of just do the topics that, you know, that I'm most passionate about and whatever, you know, sticks with me throughout the week, the bye week that I'm not doing. And I'm like, OK, this topic keeps popping up in my head. I may as well just go ahead and do it. And I kind of just felt like it's given me more creative freedom to just talk about whatever I want without focusing on the timing. So. Um, I feel like many of my topics have came from like things I've learned in school, experiences, friends' experiences, and just incorporating that into like research and stuff. And I feel like that's been the process I've been going with and it's been working. So I'm just sticking with it. With picking a topic and going through the research, 
I'm wondering how you viewed history throughout your life. Did you see it as a boring topic in traditional school settings and, and how you're kind of approaching it in a different way now for other people to make it more attainable and appealing? Mm-hmm. Um, well, when I first started, um, I would say elementary school, history wasn't really my thing. I was like, eh, it's kind of boring, big young. But then I feel like it switched for me once I got to high school and I started taking some more like AP history courses. And I had this one history teacher um, in our high school and he was so passionate about history and I just never understood but he was able to make the topics like really interesting and it was nice because he was able to give us different viewpoints on history points that we had already learned so it was like wow I didn't even know the other side of this was like this and he really delved into like the layers of different historical events and how they like were intersectioned with feminism racism and we were that was like the first teacher who's ever really like gone below the surface and really gone beyond the textbook. So I feel like that's what really sparked my passion for it when I was in high school. What do you think is a main obstacle to people, especially students, whether high school or college age, of getting interested in learning more about local history? I would say it's interesting because throughout all my history courses, we don't really talk about Wisconsin history at all. Like the most I've learned has been from like ending high school into college. So I feel like um you know, there's been a lot of things that I have learned that I wish I would have known sooner. And I think one of the biggest push, I think it starts with teachers and within school and just finding ways to make like learning about Wisconsin history more interactive opposed to, okay, these are the facts, this is the timeline and focusing on different um, events within history that don't have to be so way, way back. Like we have like a long list of history from the 1900s until now that completely gets skipped over within, you know, our education curriculum. And I think that would be a good push, definitely. So what do you think is the key to making something approachable and digestible to your followers in particular? Um, I feel like most of my followers are within the range of like 18 to like late 20s. So I feel like just making sure that the content is quick easy to read and that it's like exciting to look at. I think um, it's very different seeing a post and just seeing a long paragraph of stuff underneath it because you're not going to read that. I'm not going to read that. So I feel like finding a way to make it cute, make it easy to share, easy to repost, easy to share with others and making sure that it's using lingo that we use today. So you don't have to use huge words to understand these simple topics or explain things. And I feel like that's where a lot of things get lost when like trying to learn more about stuff is like wow those are some huge words I don't really know what that means but making the content like using words that we use today like using slang using different concepts and topics I feel like that's what really reaches the audience the most so it doesn't really feel like you're learning it just feels like you're just reading something that you would normally read on your timeline anyway. What are your favorite aspects of marketing and design that you've been able to continue to hone on your work with Woke Wednesdays? Um, definitely the creative aspect. Um, I always knew I wanted to do marketing. It's just such a broad field. I just didn't know exactly where I fit within that. So I was like, okay, I know I don't want to do sales. I know I don't want to do marketing research. Like that's not really my thing. And I feel like the blog has really allowed me to be creative and express myself. And 
I don't know. I feel like my brain kind of just like gets it. It's just like, okay, this is how it should look in my head. And now I got to get it on the screen. And it's just been really, really fun. And just like learning different programs and, you know, being able to use different concepts. And like, it's just cool how it all just like came full circle for me, I feel like within the past year and a half. So definitely the creative aspect of it and the trial and error of it all. Like you may like gonna be huge and then you post it, you put all this work into it. And then it's like, eh. and then you have a post that's like, okay, I put a little bit, you know, I'm just gonna put it out there. And then that's the one that's huge. So it's just like, I'm trying to understand why this one hit and this one did not. So I feel like that's also a fun part of it as well. Just trial and error, trying different things. And I feel like the industry is changing like so much. So really you can make it what you want. And I think that's my favorite part about marketing. Do you think you've kind of hit a, a guidebook for yourself or hit a stride in kind of understanding what works best, what doesn't, or does it still surprise you? Um, it surprised me a lot less than it did when I first started because I feel like I've kind of gotten the flow of things. And I feel like um, a lot of the work that we do is just a big equation. And once you figure out the formula, like you've got it. It's just figuring out the formula. That's the hardest part. What's been the most surprising to learn about the Milwaukee or uh, Wisconsin area for you in this work? Um, I think one of my most surprising things is that, um, well, relating it to a post, uh, I feel like one of my most surprising ones was about the evictions that happened within Milwaukee. Um, that's not anything like I've had the privilege of not being able to uh, have to experience that or deal with that, but learning about how common it really is and how common it is around the areas that I live in has probably been the most eye opening thing for me. And then just learning about like um, the responses that politicians have been, you know, doing and dealing with it and how it's been dealt with over the years and how many um, slumlords we do have in Milwaukee has definitely been one of the most surprising things in terms of like current news and past history um I definitely say um I had no idea about the history of Walker's Point and how it's been such a uh, pinnacle for the LGBTQ plus community and I feel like that's been a big eye-opener for me too because it's like I drive through it all the time and I just like oh okay there's that place that place yeah so past history with that and then current history with like eviction so that's been the two most eye-opening for me so far and then I love all the in-between where you can pick a topic, say like the dairy industry and that heavy marketing. And, you know, there's no reason why we should be eating mock chicken leg with chocolate milk at 11 a.m. on exactly. a Tuesday. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. On a Tuesday before gym class. It makes no sense. <laughs> Having gone to MPS, I, I, that was so funny to me. <laughs> it makes no sense. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's great. Like the full range of stuff you can dive into. Um, yeah. And it's like once you start with one topic, it's like you find the layers within the topic and you're like, oh, oh my gosh, girl, what? And given that you can, you know, this can grow and continues to grow and the topics are endless. What motivates you to keep this account going? I definitely think it's been my followers. I know that's kind of like a cliche like thing to say, but like some of the things people write me and the comments they leave. And like the posts, like they are some of the sweetest things ever. And um, one that really stood out for me is that um, when I did my series on um, Native American history in Wisconsin, I had someone message me and the message was like, it was huge. It was like a few paragraphs. And it was basically them saying how they moved out of Wisconsin because of all the racism that they felt dealing with in like the hometown they went to and the school they went to. And they had a lot of siblings that were still here and dealing with the same thing. 
and they were really talking about how guilty they felt for leaving and how this post like really inspired them to like check in with their family and stuff and how it was so nice that this was being talked about and explained and how she really felt like her culture was being appreciated because it's been so pushed aside within Wisconsin's like curriculum and everything and you know so that was just really nice to hear I'm like oh I'm glad I could like you know reach out and like make you feel better you know about your decisions and everything so it's definitely posts like that that keep me motivated because I have fallen into slumps where I'm like okay I don't know if I really want to keep doing this or like I don't know I had a period like that but it's definitely those messages that are very inspiring. Well, Christina, I want to thank you so much for joining me today to talk a little more about Woke Wednesdays. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Christina Boyd is the creator of the Woke Wednesdays 414 Instagram account, which explores Wisconsin history, social justice issues, and current events. We spoke in 2021. All month long, WUWM is celebrating women's history by highlighting the women who've had an impact in our city. Some of these notable women are laid to rest at Forest Home Cemetery. Forest Home is Milwaukee's oldest cemetery, and there are many remarkable women buried there over more than a century of the city's history. Anita Petrukowski is a volunteer, guide, and author, and she joins me to share the stories of a few of the cemetery's notable female residents. There are too many women to name in our conversation today, but we're going to highlight just a few. So let's start with Lenore Harrison Cocker, and she'll be appreciated by any animal lovers listening right now. Oh, Lenore has a wonderful story, and she's mostly forgotten. But Lenore Harrison was born in 1873 and died in 1932, and she dedicated her entire adult life to the care uh, of homeless animals that were needing shelter in the city of Milwaukee. In the early 1900s, she happened to witness animals uh, being caught by the dog pound catchers, and she was appalled by what she saw. And so she approached the Common Council and asked if she could serve as the dog catcher and the pound keeper for the city at no cost to them. And so yes, the city agreed. And that started Lenore on about a 24 year journey of caring for Milwaukee's uh, stray dogs, cats, birds, horses, rabbits, goats, and other animals. She named her shelter the Cocker Animal House. And it was in existence from 1906 to 1930. So over the course of the 24 years that the Cocker Animal House was in existence, Lenore used her own personal inheritance from her parents to pay for the funding of the Cocker Animal House. It was not funded really by the city at all. Yeah, she spent an equivalent to $5.1 million today. And Lenore is buried in Section 34 next to her parents in an unmarked grave. Now, is the fact that it's unmarked kind of indicative that she spent all of her money towards this operation throughout her life? Yes, when she passed away, she was penniless and in debt. And so all of uh, the properties that she owned, I'm sure, were sold to pay for the debt. But uh, yes, yeah, she is in an unmarked grave on the Cocker family plot, and she's buried next to her parents. Well, 
ended up in debt, but helped save the lives of thousands of animals throughout her time here. Next, we have someone who is intricately tied to one of Milwaukee's landmarks, the North Point Lighthouse. So can you share more about Georgia Green Stebbins? Yes, happy to. Georgia Green Stebbins was born in 1846 and died in 1921. And she has an amazing life story. She was the keeper of North Point Lighthouse for 33 years. Georgia was actually born in New York and was living in New York with her husband when she contracted tuberculosis. And her doctor said, you need to leave New York City and find a place where the air is cool and fresh so that you can improve your health. Well, she came to Milwaukee where her father, Daniel Green, was the lighthouse keeper. He actually was appointed lighthouse keeper in uh, 1871. So when she arrived in 1874 and she came to the lighthouse, she found both her father and her mother were in ill health. He was unable to perform his duties. So without hesitation, Georgia stepped up. She started doing the duties and the responsibilities of the lighthouse keeper and did so for the next seven years during her father's term. In 1881, then Georgia was appointed the official lighthouse keeper of North Point Lighthouse and served for 26 years in that capacity. So in total, 33 years as the lighthouse keeper at Milwaukee's North Point Lighthouse. It's very impressive, and I imagine it wasn't common for any lighthouse in the country to be run by a woman at this time. So what kind of duties and tasks did Georgia dedicate her life to? Well, in addition to maintaining her home, because she did have a a child, she had Albert, and he was born right there. Uh, She never took a vacation, but uh, the things that she did is, uh, especially during the winter, every four hours, she had to climb the lighthouse tower and she was responsible for filling the canisters with oil, trimming the wick, cleaning the windows, winding the mechanism so that the uh, light at the top of the lighthouse would continue to burn all night long. And she did that every four hours. So it was amazing until uh, an electric light was installed in 1909. But she did that faithfully without leaving her post. She also had to uh, maintain records. So she recorded the passing of ships. Uh, If there were uh, boats in distress, uh, she informed the Coast Guard. And so all of those records and that information actually is still maintained in the North Point Lighthouse Museum. And you can see those kinds of things that she had while she was the lighthouse keeper there at the museum today. So before there were bookmobiles and little free libraries that we see today on walks in our neighborhoods, uh, there was Ludi Eugenia Stearns, and she was also known as the Johnny Appleseed of libraries in Wisconsin. So can you share with us how she earned that nickname? Well, she was actually born in Massachusetts, and she lived from 1866 until 1943. And she came to Milwaukee, and she started her career as a teacher with the Milwaukee Public Schools in 1888. And so she was assigned to a classroom probably with about 50 children. 
and she was uh, struck by the few library books that were in her classroom and in the school. And so after school, every single week, she would take a few boys uh, in her horse-drawn wagon and go to the library with, uh, and she would take out two books for every child in her class. And she did this uh, with her, her students for the two years that she was employed as a teacher. But she was noticed by the library staff and they asked if she would be willing to take a job working for the library and visiting classrooms in the Milwaukee school system to interest children in books. Well, that was the start of her career, actually. Uh, in, she wasn't a librarian, but that was the start of her career in library books. In 1895, Ludie Stearns was instrumental in helping to create the Wisconsin Free Library Commission. And Ludie herself became a traveling uh, librarian. And so in those days, there were boxes of books that were created. And Ludie herself, by wagon, by sleigh, by a horse-drawn carriage, would go around to communities around the state of Wisconsin. And she would deliver the traveling free libraries to communities around the state. And those uh, free libraries were usually tended by a volunteer from that community. But those free libraries were placed in farmhouses, in stores, in churches, and places where citizens had access to library books. And so she did this for about 24 years. So after she ret retired, she became a public speaker. She was an, an advocate for literacy and women's rights. Uh, and she actually wrote an article, uh, As a Woman Sees It, for the Milwaukee Sentinel. So I think it was her work uh, traveling throughout the state of Wisconsin and delivering those boxes of books that uh, where she earned the title at the Johnny Appleseed of Libraries in Wisconsin. Yeah, we should note that in total, she established more than 150 libraries, 1,400 traveling libraries, and 14 county library systems in Wisconsin, which is certainly impressive. Uh, the last woman we're going to talk about today is Harriet Laura Barker Kramer. So she had a 54-year career in the newspaper business, which she started getting involved in at just 16 years old. So how did that job at 16 years old shape the rest of her life and career? Harriet Laura Barker Kramer was born in Packwaukee. And Packwaukee is a small community just north of Portage, Wisconsin. So at the age of 16, she came to the city of Milwaukee to stay with a relative. But she was hired by the Evening Wisconsin newspaper as a, a proofreader and a typesetter. One of her responsibilities at the age of 16 was to read the evening newspaper copy to the editor, who was William E. Kramer. And William Kramer was both blind and nearly deaf. And so what she had to do each evening, she sat next to him and read the copy into his long black ear trumpet 
And so over the course of five years of this relationship with her editor, uh, they ended up eventually marrying. So the story becomes more interesting in January, on January 10th, 1883, Harriet and her husband, William, were living at the Newhall House Hotel in downtown Milwaukee. On January 10th, 1883, a fire broke out in the hotel. It was a blazing inferno. And so Harriet tried to decide best how to escape the burning hotel. So what did she do? She picked her husband up and carried him through the burning, smoke-filled hallways that were filled with screaming people. They both sustained injuries, serious injuries, but they made it out alive. And so rather than being memorialized here at the cemetery, at the monument for those that perished in the Newhall House Hotel fire, Harriet went on to live uh, a full life and had a 54-year career with the Evening Wisconsin newspaper. And actually, after her husband passed away, she became the president. So she worked her way all the way up from proofreader and typesetter to the president of the Evening Wisconsin newspaper. One of many interesting stories at Forest Home. And Anita, I want to thank you so much for sharing a bit about these four women with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy you invited me to be with you today. Anita Petrakowski is a volunteer and guide at Forest Home Cemetery in Milwaukee. She's also the author of the historic women chapter of the book, Milwaukee's Forest Home Cemetery. We spoke last March. Did you know that you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn about a Wisconsin woman who formed a resistance group against the Nazi regime. But first, we'll learn about the first black woman, Cantor, who was born here in Milwaukee. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Milwaukee lays claim to the first black woman cantor who grew up here in the early 1900s. Madame Goldie Steiner wasn't a cantor in an Ashkenazi or European Jewish synagogue. Those roles were not open to women until the 1970s and 80s. But she may have led prayers in black Jewish communities and was part of the golden age of Jewish liturgical music, singing it throughout Wisconsin, the Midwest, and the country as a part of the Yiddish theater scene on Broadway and on the radio. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with Milwaukee-born educator, artist, and advocate Shahana McKinney-Balden to learn more about her life. 
So Madame Goldier Steiner was born in 1889 as Gladys May Sellers and raised in Milwaukee. Can you tell us about her life? Yes. She sang from a very young age, and she was a gifted vocalist. As a young person, she um, went to school in Milwaukee Public Schools, where she undoubtedly became fluent in German, because all kids were getting at least some instruction in German in Milwaukee Public Schools at that time. As a young adult, she was an usher at the Pabst Theater. And then she uh, was active in her church, which was St. Mark AME Church, the same St. Mark AME Church, which is still active in Milwaukee today. They're on Atkinson, about 16th and Atkinson. And she was very active in the um, musical life of the church. The church was a very important center of African-American life at this time. And, you know, before the Great Migration, there were very few African-Americans in Milwaukee. In her early life, um, there were probably a thousand black people in Milwaukee. Uh, but anyway, she, she grew up, she got married to Albert Smack, who was a singer and who also um, uh, ended up uh, working at the uh, Milwaukee Journal. He was a, a metal man there. And they both were involved in the musical life of the church. And Gladys sang in the church and also in the community. And she sang in the community in Milwaukee and in the surrounding region, in Madison, in Chicago, in Minnesota. Uh, and she sang at some very important African-American community events, a send-off for African-American soldiers headed off to World War I, the opening of a black-owned business in Madison that was an all-day affair with a full baseball game and looking at stereoscope images of uh, black progress and solos by Gladys. She was part of the Wisconsin delegation that represented the state at the Jubilee 50-year celebration after emancipation. It was a little bit more than 50 years after. I think it took a while to get this event together. Um, but this was in Chicago, and she was a part of it. The black press followed her career. The um, Wisconsin Weekly Blade, an important black paper that was published in Madison and then in Milwaukee later. And the Chicago Defender, which had a correspondent who was based in Milwaukee. They followed her career. So we know quite a bit about her singing career in Milwaukee. And then around 1922, she gives it all up and she leaves and she goes to New York. And in New York, she becomes Madame Goldie Steiner. And she starts to sing Jewish liturgical music this was the golden age of chazanus, which is the term for 
Jewish liturgical music led by a prayer leader called a chazan. There were women who were doing this. They were called chazantas, which actually meant the wife of a chazan, but it's a term that these woman singers took on as they were a part also of this golden age of chazanas where Jewish liturgical music was sung in concert halls, on the radio, and on records. It was wildly popular in the Jewish community and also beyond. There was a handful of African-American chazanim who were a part of this golden age of chazanis, and Madame Goldie Steiner was the only African-American woman to our knowledge who was a part of this artistic movement. That's amazing. Um, do you know anything about her transition into Jewish liturgical music? Like what inspired her to, to start singing that? Was it just geography being in New York and being around that? Or do you have any idea? Well, we have some, we have some ideas. First of all, she already sang in many languages before she became a part of this golden age of Chazanis movement. And Milwaukee at this time was a time of a lot of exciting black thought and modern African-American advancements in philosophy and religion. As a matter of fact, Milwaukee plays an important role in many of the stories of indigenous African-American religion, African-American homegrown religious movements like the Nation of Islam. Milwaukee is the place where Elijah Muhammad came and hid out for several years when he had to move away from where he was at in, in the early years of his career. And Milwaukee was also a place where African-American Judaism has a lot of historic connections. I imagine that Madame Goldie Steiner had a lot of connections to Jewishness and Jewish traditions from a few different angles that included, yes, moving to New York, actually to the Lower East Side, and becoming a part of the Yiddish theater scene there. And as she became a part of the Yiddish theater scene, she was facing the same kind of racism and social restrictions that black male hunters experienced, but she had an extra layer being a woman in that environment can you can you talk about what it means to be a woman who chose to sing chazonis, which are synagogue chants, basically? Madame Goldie Steiner is a one of a cohort of woman chazantas who are a part of this golden age of chazonis. And Dr. Jeremiah Lockwood is doing really exciting research to retell the story of the chazantas. These women were not singing in synagogues, partly due to traditional religious restrictions against 
men listening to women singing for modesty reasons. But actually, again, this is part of the golden age of Chazanus where men were also singing this music in concert halls, on the radio, on records. But for Madame Goldie Steiner, if she was engaged with what we call today Hebrew Israelite or indigenous African-American Judaism's communities, those communities actually had a lot of woman leadership. They had women in positions of authority who were leading prayer and other elements of community life for those communities. And so, for example, if she went to New York and became a part of the Commandment Keepers or another of the more well-known Black Jewish communities there, it's conceivable that she was in leadership positions and maybe even leading prayers in those communities. Uh, but certainly in Ashkenazi Jewish synagogues, the woman leadership of prayers for the full congregation doesn't come until much later, with a very few exceptions. So Madam Goldie is part of, of many lineages and legacies. And yes, the Kolisha prohibition uh, against the, the voice of a woman is a part of the story, but it's only a part. So she spent a few decades in New York and that she performed elsewhere around the country. When did she come back to Milwaukee and, and what was the end of her life like? I want to give a shout out to my friend and teacher, Henry Sapoznik, who did the groundbreaking research, which is the only reason any of us are talking about Madame Goldie Steiner and her trailblazing career uh, today, along with the other um, African-American Chazanim from the Golden Age of Chazanis. I learned about Madame Goldie Steiner from Henry's research, and I was listening to a talk that he had given on Zoom one day, and he was talking about how he, uh, the last known performance of hers was this amazing showcase that was a fundraiser for the Brooklyn Urban League where she performed on a bill with all these amazing famous people, including Duke Ellington. And then he says, we lose track of her after 1941. And I'm listening, thinking, I bet she went home to Milwaukee. That's what I would do. And I just kind of started poking around and doing my own internet research and going on Ancestry.com, frankly, as well as paying close attention to kind of what other armchair folks were doing different comments on different Twitter threads where folks had posted about Henry's research. And um, I found her. I found her family. I found her story about the end of her life. I found her unmarked grave in Milwaukee, which is near Alverno College. And yes, she came home to Milwaukee sometime in the 40s, 
where she lived with her husband, her second husband, Richard Armstead, and um, his daughter. And then Richard died in 1953. And she lived in Milwaukee until 1960, where she, when she died in Wauwatosa. And they're both buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery, um, which is like 35th and Morgan. And I'm very pleased to be working with Wisconsin Black Historical Society on a fundraiser to raise funds for grave markers for Goldie Steiner's grave, as well as her husband's grave. We've almost met our goal, and um, I'm very, very proud to be working with the Wisconsin Black Historical Society and Museum on that part of this work. Also, I've been invited to connect with the Bronzeville Arts Ensemble, which is a part of the wonderful Black Arts Milwaukee organization to do a production to tell the story of Madame Goldie Steiner and her, her trailblazing career. So I'm just thrilled and I've been thinking about this as rematriating her story to Milwaukee and to the history and histories of Milwaukee. Shahana McKinney-Balden is an educator, artist, advocate, and thought leader on racial and ethnic diversity in the Jewish community. She spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. Milwaukee-born Mildred Fish Harnack was the only American civilian executed on direct orders from Adolf Hitler. We'll learn about her life next on Like Effect, here on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Mildred Fish Harnack has a day dedicated to her here in Wisconsin. And if you don't know who that is, you're not alone. Despite the courageousness of her life's work, fighting the Nazis as a founder of the Red Orchestra resistance group in Germany, much of her story has been lost to time. But her work and her courage remain a potent reminder of the power of people to overcome great evil. 
Art Heiser has been an integral part of reviving Fish Harnack's story by lobbying for the state holiday recognizing her life. He spoke about her life with Lake Effect's Joy Powers in 2021. It's an interesting story that I would guess very few people know about. In a couple sentences, just to kind of start off, how would you describe her? She was a working class uh, near West Sider in Milwaukee, born uh, 1902, I think, who uh, became quite uh, involved in scholarly matters. She was not of German nor Jewish ancestry, but uh, did become very involved in German culture, married a a German scholar uh, that they met together at UW-Madison and moved there when uh, Hitler was taking over and uh, formed the core group of what's sometimes described as the largest resistance group based in Germany against the Nazi regime. She has the distinction of being the only American woman to be executed on the direct orders of Adolf Hitler. And I'd, I'd like to get back to, you know, why she was considered so dangerous in just a moment. But as you mentioned, she moved to Germany just as the Nazi party was beginning to rise to power and really re-enter the public consciousness with a more kind of streamlined, professional kind of politicking than they had had in the past. How did the views of the Nazis square with Mildred's politics? Well, we don't know everything about Mildred's politics. She was certainly a progressive of some kind. Uh, but she was someone who uh, did not uh, accept injustice. But even more so, she was involved in being a bridge between various cultures, most prominently uh, American and German culture. She was a real scholar humanist. She married into uh, really uh, one, if not the blue chip families of academics in Germany, the Harnacks, uh, in the field of theology, science, and humanism. Her husband uh, was studying under John R. Commons, which is a name that will mean something. People who care about the Wisconsin idea in Madison. And they had a regular group, the Friday Nighters, who would meet and discuss issues like should there be some kind of compensation for people who are unemployed? And should there be social security and workers' comp and all that stuff? So they were scholars, but uh, among many things and among many scholars, they did not accept the intolerance and the brutality and the aggression, the racism, I would say subjugation of female ideology of the Nazis. How did they come to form what is at least now known as the Red Orchestra. Yeah, well, let's talk about the Red Orchestra for a minute. So uh, the Gestapo, which was a Nazi uh, a foremost police group, I guess we'd say. So they were looking for this group of people who they nicknamed Di Rota Capella, generally translated in English as the Red Orchestra. And that consisted of Various people, many intellectuals, but also workers and uh, people from different backgrounds, many of them left-wing oriented, but also conservatives. But they were united in their hatred and willingness to take risks, uh, even the ultimate sacrifice to defeat Hitler and the Nazi power structure. Ultimately, Mildred Fish Harnack does make that ultimate sacrifice. 
As uh, previously mentioned, she does have the distinction of being the only American woman to be executed on direct orders from Adolf Hitler. Why was she considered so dangerous? So actually, I think her her claim in that regard is even broader. We don't know of any men, American men, who were in that same situation. And I think it's a fair statement that she's the only American who uh, played a significant role or was executed for being part of the German resistance, uh, male or female or anything else. So she was a you know very gifted linguist. So the group published the underground newspaper, tried to reach uh, foreign workers that were brought in to work in armaments plants because the German, some of the German guys were already involved in fighting the war itself. She was also very much an intimate of the remaining staff of the U.S. Embassy and legation there, and uh, provided information about Nazi war plans and armaments plans, both to the U.S., uh, but also they provided information to the Soviet Union about the plans of Hitler to uh, break uh, kind of the detente they had on the Eastern Front and to invade. And uh, so they played a crucial role. I mean, she's sometimes viewed as a spy, and that was uh, valid, but was not the beginning or the end of what her role and the whole group did. So she was initially sentenced to six years of hard labor. Her husband, Arvid, was sentenced to be executed and was around Christmas of 1942, I believe. And by uh, February of 1943, uh, Hitler was increasingly, uh, I'll say, beside himself as the, uh, the war in the East against the Soviet Union, uh, which they thought was going to be a big success and a piece of cake, uh, ended up being a disaster. So Hitler was, was angered, and he had this American in his clutches, so to say, and uh, did not feel that a six-year hard labor uh, sentence, which she would perhaps have survived the war, uh, was justified and took revenge against uh, the American nation by ordering her execution. As we look at her legacy today, as it stands, you know, not just here in Milwaukee and Wisconsin, but, you know, nationally as a figure who did fight for German liberation. What do you think that legacy really is? Well, I think, number one, it's that people can and some people think they're obligated to take action when they see injustice, whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's a war of aggression that killed tens of millions of people, uh, whether it's general intolerance or lack of willingness to discuss ideas. And even when the stakes are very high, in this case, as high as they could be for the individuals in that group. Well, Art, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing so much of this story. Thank you very much. Art Heitzer is the president of the Milwaukee Turners and an expert on the life of Mildred Fish Harnack. He spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers in 2021. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you listen to your podcast to hear all of our shows on demand. If you've been to a bar in Wisconsin, you've likely seen a pull tab machine. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore the history of the highly addictive bar gambling activity. 
Plus, we'll look at the shortage of caregivers for seniors and how LGBTQ plus seniors are uniquely impacted by this. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.